2: family, it can be complicated. Maybe you're looking ahead to that family vacation over the holidays, or maybe you're dreading that uncomfortable dinner with your nutty uncle or your cousins who always disagree with you about politics. Last week, we brought you a story about a bunch of siblings who didn't know each other growing up, but who all shared the same sperm donor dad. And they found they shared other things, too, like a love of singing. This week we're bringing you another show about family, families digging deep, pulling together when confronting some of the hard things life can throw our way. From a family in Butte County coping with the tragedy of wildfire.
3: My parents' house was the central location for Christmas, Thanksgiving, birthdays, that's where we went so we have to just rethink it.
2: To a Bay Area family, intentionally created by people who never thought their paths would cross.
4: Yeah, I don't want them to see us and our country is, is full of mean people that, that don't welcome them.
2: And a family business in Merced County facing an unexpected threat, a critter with orange bucked teeth. I'm Sasha Coca and this is the California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. to start our show today hearing about a family trying to stay connected while they're on opposite sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. Veronica Aguilar arrived in a migrant caravan from El Salvador last year seeking asylum in the U.S. This year, her teenage son is making the same journey, traveling to Tijuana in the current caravan with his grandmother. For the last few months, we've been bringing you stories about families who've been separated by immigration policies. Veronica doesn't know how or whether she'll ever be reunited with her son. But there is one unexpected outcome from her immigration story. Veronica is living with a Bay Area couple who took her into their home. She says these people who were strangers just a few months ago feel like family now. For her, they are her family. KQED's Farida
5: La Romero brings us Veronica's story. Three. Veronica joins a group of women and kids as they bake a cake. They're standing around a wooden island in a gleaming kitchen.
6: There you go.
5: Then it's time to dip a finger in the batter to have a taste. Chocolate. <laughs> Veronica goes for it. It's good. <laughs> Not too long ago, Veronica's life was very different. After she applied for asylum at the San Diego border, she was jailed at a detention center for immigrants in Southern California for seven months. But in June, she was able to get out of jail because a nonprofit group paid her bond, and Anne and Kent Moriarty sponsored her. They opened up their home to her in the small city of Pinole near Berkeley. The Moriarty's were strangers. But not anymore. Siempre están allí cuando yo los necesito. They're always there when I need them, she says. Anne says the decision she and her husband Kent made to share their home with Veronica and another family seeking asylum was the right thing to do. We're both Christians, and that's
6: actually part of what has motivated us in thinking of how Christ talks about welcoming the stranger.
5: Anne and Kent volunteered for years visiting detained immigrants, helping them fill out applications and communicate with relatives back home.
4: And so it wasn't a big step or a scary decision to to invite them to stay with us.
5: Sitting at the kitchen table, Kent says he sees us house guests, sometimes treated with suspicion.
4: Yeah, I don't want him to see us in our country is is full of mean people that that don't welcome them.
5: Anne says Veronica's stories have been hard to
6: hear. Understanding the reality of what people are coming from in El Salvador and just the violence and the
5: the terror. Veronica says she fled death threats from gangs in El Salvador. And she says the only way to keep her 15-year-old son from being recruited by gangs was for him to get out. So Veronica has been glued to her cell phone following the boy and his grandmother as they make their way to Tijuana. I step outside the Moriarty's home with Veronica as she finishes a call with her mother. The next day, I go to Tijuana to meet Veronica's son, Vladimir, and her mother, Lucy Diaz. I'm at a sports complex turned shelter When I visit, 4,000 migrants are staying here. Lucy shows me where she sleeps, on the ground, under a tarp. Her mat touches others all around her. She says walking with the caravan, her sneakers fell apart, and someone gave her a pair of flip-flops. Her feet got bloody, and she lost three toenails on her right foot, and three on her left. She says at times she felt she couldn't go on. But she traveled more than 2,000 miles to the US border with Vladimir because her daughter Veronica didn't want her son to make the journey alone. And they knew the boy couldn't stay in their town near San Salvador. Lucy says it's a red zone for gangs. For this we decided. But Vladimir is not here with her. Lucy decided he'd be safer at a small youth shelter across town, with a roof over his head, regular meals, and access to immigration attorneys. And here's the thing. After that whole journey, Lucy now has to tell her grandson goodbye. She's not going across the border with him. She's going back to El Salvador to take care of two other grandchildren who she's raising. But before she leaves, she needs to see her grandson one more time. I go with her. At the youth shelter, a dozen teens sit on couches watching soccer and TV. A staffer opens a room for Lucy and her grandson so they can have some time alone together. He says he's okay. But his eyes are very wide. He looks scared. This 15-year-old with a baseball cap and shorts will have to try to cross the border, request asylum and reach his mother in the San Francisco Bay Area alone. It's hard. I don't know what's going to happen, if I'm going to be able to cross or not, he says. His grandmother, Lucy, reaches over and hugs Vladimir close. Remember I love you, she says, crying. I brought you here not to abandon you, but to make sure you have a future. Take care, Lucy says. It could be months before Vladimir gets to see a U.S. asylum officer. If he doesn't pass an initial screening, he'll be deported to El Salvador. If he does pass, he'll be held in the custody of the U.S. government for weeks or months until they agree to release him to his mom, Veronica. Meanwhile, all Veronica can do is watch and wait from far away. She says she's consumed with worry. Her son's fate is out of her hands. Solo tengo que tener paciencia, aunque I have to be patient, humanas, she says, but hey, as a parent, protect I protect just them want them to protect them. him. One thing that gives her comfort, she says, is that she's not alone. Me ayuda a no sentirme sola, de que están ellos apoyándome. She knows her sponsors, the Moriarty's, are with her. They say they'll figure it out together, like family. For the California Report, Anfarida Jaffala-Romero.
2: We're talking this week about families. And one of the most painful things that all families have to deal with eventually is death. Depending on our culture, we honor and celebrate our loved ones in different ways. But what happens if you don't have a say in whether they're cremated or buried or where they're laid to rest? That's what happened to the people who knew and loved Raymond Mata. The California Report's Alex Hall met up with them in Fresno.
7: On the west side of town, there's an empty lot near the train tracks. Guests sit in plastic white chairs on astroturf. One by one, leaders of different faiths come up to a podium framed by flowers. Each one says, in more words or less, everyone deserves a dignified burial. Behind the podium is a patch of freshly turned soil. It's a mass grave for abandoned remains, a potter's field.
4: And now, into the hands of time, we release these
3: precious human lives.
7: A few of the guests, guests have come to pay now, respects to one man, Raymond Mata. Mike Simpson wears a biker vest with patches and pins and sunglasses.
1: Raymond was uh, a, a young man with a lot of energy and uh, a lot of thought for other people. Oh man, you're gonna <laughs> get me weak now.
7: Mike is the kind of guy who will raz you just for fun. But talking about Raymond is different. Mike is an iron worker and so was Raymond. They worked on tall buildings, risking their lives together. And through that, they developed a close friendship. He didn't expect Raymond to take his own life.
1: A bunch of things kind of came down on him and, uh, you know, unable to cope with it, I guess. And then we didn't know his history in the past that he had had situations like that, so.
7: Whatever Raymond was battling, Mike says he kept to himself. He was always laughing and making other people laugh.
1: Because he was one of the happiest guys you've ever met. He's not somebody you forget.
7: That's Skip Morgan, another ironworker who knew Raymond.
1: I think that's what what the whole point of living is. is Somebody remembers you, right? That you've made a good enough impression with other people that they remember you when you're gone. Too bad we can't get a little more of it while we're living.
7: I found some of Raymond's family who told me he was loved. I called Leonard Pelagio, Raymond's cousin. When they were kids, Leonard taught Raymond how to break dance and took him to competitions.
1: All of a sudden, you come out with two little five, six, seven-year-olds Doing head spins like, boom, gotcha. <laughs> Every competition that we were in, we took first place.
7: They kept in touch as adults. Leonard says Raymond died when he hanged himself with an electrical cord. But there were signs he had tried killing himself before. Yeah,
1: I didn't, I didn't know about it until I saw his neck. When I visited him one time, I was like, hey, what's that on your neck? Like, nothing. I'm like, nothing. Don't give me that nothing. Well, let me see this. You know, and he promised me that he would never do it again. And I told him to reach out to me. If you need, you got something going on, I'll help you.
7: How did Raymond end up here, in a grave holding the cremated remains of nearly 800 people? Fresno County started burying people who couldn't afford a formal burial in common graves in the late 1800s when the city was founded. Nowadays, people end up in potter's fields for many reasons. Maybe they lost touch with family, or their family couldn't afford the $812.50 it costs to collect ashes from the morgue. But Raymond wasn't homeless. He had a job, he had family, he was planning to get married. After Raymond died, his family had him cremated. But there was a huge fight over who had ownership of his remains, and people stopped talking to each other. As next of kin, his daughter was legally entitled to his ashes. But the family says she never picked them up from the funeral home— I tried reaching her, and she never responded, but I did find Raymond's mother, Diana Mata.
4: We were told in 30 days if nobody claimed Raymond's ashes, it was considered abandonment. And then when we kept on trying, I have letters, I I have emails, but we still couldn't do anything.
7: The funeral home refused to release the ashes to Diana. That was in 2013. If you go to where Raymond is buried now, you'll find an empty lot framed by railroad tracks, cinder block, and barbed wire. There's no grass. The podium gazebos and chairs that were here for the memorial service, that's all gone. Instead of a tombstone, there's just a strip of cement with the numbers 59 and 60 stamped in. Diana is sitting right next to it, on a folding chair, next to a photo of Raymond in his ironworker's vest and his motorcycle. Diana did not want Raymond to be buried here. She says he was not abandoned. No, he, he
4: was loved. I'm the one that gave birth to him. He was my baby. I do still have all his pictures. They don't go down. They're still all up at the house. I just haven't been able to release him yet. And I'm calm now because now I know he's where he's laying at and he's resting. Now that I know where he is... We're going to sit here for a while and just enjoy the peace and speak to him.
7: When she couldn't get her son's ashes, Diana held a service for Raymond in L.A., where she lives, with just his photos. The ironworkers came. His grandma, aunts and uncles, and old friends from school were there, too. So many people were there, she says. There wasn't enough room to sit down. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Fresno.
2: going to head a little bit north from fresno to merced county california's sweet potato capital we will meet a farming family that's facing a foe that could ruin their business it weighs 20 pounds has orange buck teeth and can have 200 babies a year for the series california foodways reporters angela johnston and lisa morehouse bring us the story
6: Stan Silva hadn't even heard the word nutria until a few months ago. Now he's worried about the damage these critters could do in California if we don't get rid of them. It would be devastating. They can uh, basically ruin the ag industry here. They get in your fields, they burrow into your canalways, your waterways. Making the state's water infrastructure more vulnerable. These rodents have been spotted mostly in Merced County for the past year, but they're on the move, heading toward the San Joaquin Delta, the most critical piece of California's water system. They're just a menace. Stan's son Aaron tells us even though he's worried about nutria, he's never seen one. Angela shows him a picture.
0: So that's a nutria, a little varmint-looking thing, like a rat. Almost looks like your dog, Dad. Yeah.
6: <laughs> The Silvas take us on a tour of their sweet potato packing facility. The last few months, they've given away thousands of pounds because get this, what's most at threat for the Silvas, their sweet potatoes, just happen to be unlikely weapons in the fight against the Nutria scourge. Nutria love sweet potatoes. We'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. Gosh, our family's been here since uh, the early 1900s, and we've been in sweet potatoes all my life. Stan Silva's grandparents came to the Central Valley from the Azores and Lisbon in Portugal and started farming on small plots. Now, the Silvas grow sweet potatoes on 850 acres and supply the largest retailers in the country. We're going to the back here where the bagging takes place a huge gyro machine that processes 30 bags of sweet potatoes in a minute. That's where Stan's grandson Ruger is in charge. Forgive me, but you don't look like you're old enough to have such a big role in a company like this. I'm only
4: 18, but my dad had a heart attack, so I had to come back and help with everything.
6: In late summer, 44-year-old Aaron Silva had a massive heart attack that left him hospitalized for a month. Stan explains what his grandson did. He left college to come back to help on the ranch until his father gets further along here. Oh my God, that's so moving. I know, it really is. Part of how the Silva family's getting through this crisis, making jokes. When I tell Aaron he doesn't look like he just had a heart attack, he says,
4: I look better than my son.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Aaron's still recovering from a brain injury that was a side effect of the heart attack. He says he can't remember longtime customers' names or faces. His dad can't resist taking a crack. The only thing he didn't forget was his two-hour lunch breaks. He still takes two-hour lunch breaks. But Aaron says he didn't lose any memory of the process of farming and packing sweet potatoes. Farming's in his blood, and he doesn't want anything, including nutria, that are living just miles away in marshland, to threaten it. I don't think they know we're here yet. My co-reporter Angela and I are out with biologist Sean McCain at a pond near the Merced River. We're getting our
0: first look at a nutria. It looks like a cross between a rat and a beaver, with webbed feet and big orange bucked teeth. Just Google it. Is
4: that one right there? Yep, I think we're looking at one right there.
0: Sean's mission with the Department of Fish and Wildlife? Nutria eradication. He first saw a family of nutria here two weeks ago.
6: I've been watching um, the vegetation actually recede away from uh, the middle of the pond.
0: Nutria can eat up to 25 percent of their body weight in one day. If they clear-cut an entire marsh like this one, they put all the birds and frogs and other species that depend on it at risk. The nutria problem is potentially so big that Fish and Wildlife is pulling staff from all over the state for on-the-ground training, setting up cameras and traps filled with sweet potatoes.
6: Yeah, hey, once you step through the it takes a while to get your marsh legs.
0: <laughs> I joined Sean and his team wading chest deep into water to set up a platform to lure nutria. They pull out reeds to make a little nest and slice one of the Silva family's sweet potatoes for bait. It turns out nutria love its color and taste. With the help of these sweet potatoes, the state's trapped over 330 nutria since April. When we climb out of the marsh, Sean shows Lisa a video from a wildlife camera they pulled today.
6: Those are adult nutria. And that one just stole our sweet potato. They go and tell the siblings. Oh, there's so many of them. Yep. And there's the pups all feeding. Looks like one, two, three, four, five. And the sixth one is approaching. That exploding population of rodents, that's why the Silva family has given away nearly five tons of their sweet potatoes to fish and wildlife. They're safeguarding their livelihood and showing up for their larger agricultural family the way they do for their own. When his son Aaron had that near-fatal heart attack a few months ago, Stan Silva says they pulled together. It's frightening. Sobering. You got to have faith. And despite health problems or threats to their farm, this family says it isn't going anywhere. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse... And I'm Angela Johnston in Merced County. Angela and
2: Lisa's story was produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, a nonprofit investigative news organization. It was 1960 when a young couple from Laverne in L.A. County moved north to Paradise. Back then, there were fewer than 10,000 people in the town tucked high in the pines between Chico and the Plumas National Forest. An 89-year-old woman named Arlene Harms remembers it well.
4: We lived there when it was no stoplights. No, I there mean, were
1: no stoplights. <laughs> There was
4: nothing in Paradise when we first moved here, and that's why I loved it, of course.
2: Arlene's husband, Ellis, landed a job as the principal of what was then the only elementary school in Paradise. That's gone now, burned down.
1: I can't believe it. It was built by WPA in 1935, and it's gone. The church that we came to Paradise for as well is uh, gone.
2: Arlene played piano and organ for that church before it, too, was destroyed by the campfire. KQED's Rachel Myro tells us how this family is now imagining a life outside the place they called home for so long.
3: That's not Arlene playing Bach's Cantata 147, but it helps you imagine her sitting at the church organ, doesn't it? The community church of the Brethren and Arlene and Ellis' house and everything in it is gone, including any family photos, films, and recordings not digitized. Randomly, they have an oil painting of the house given to them by a friend, and that's what they show me to give a sense of what it looked like before the fire. With three kids... Gail, Neil, and Don, the family started in a two room cabin. Then they built a bigger home with an impressive stone fireplace. The cabin became an art studio for Ellis where he made ceramics. Arlene saw both burned down on november eighth.
4: It's wiped off the map. I still can't can't get my arms around it, you know.
1: We knew it was very vulnerable. In fact, we always worried about a fire, but we lived there since 1960 without any calamities. so then you get used to it.
3: Their daughter Dawn would have been three years old when she rode a tricycle around what was then a construction site. She put her handprint in the cement of the carport, and it was one of the things I was asked to look for when I headed, before the public evacuations lifted, to the site where 7125 Clark used to be. I couldn't find the handprint. The fire was so hot when it passed here, it liquefied the asphalt on the ground, where you could see the ground, given that everything was littered with debris. Some of Ellis's ceramic pots survived. They were fired in a kiln after all. Also still standing, the spiral staircase that used to lead up to the carport where the family put out mattresses so they could sleep under the stars. Now that staircase leads nowhere. Arlene had been in the hospital and then rehabbed for two months before the fire, recovering from a salt deficiency.
1: She got home from rehab the day before we were
3: evacuated. She's going to need medical support, and Ellis is 92. So the family has found a place for Arlene and Ellis in an assisted living facility.
1: We're having to adjust to the idea of living in assisted living. You know, we lived in our own home, and all of a sudden we now have to think of living with all those other old people.
3: <laughs> Chico is closest, but all booked up, so Sacramento it will be.
1: This is as good a place as any, and it's close to our son, and close to all three kids, actually. Gail is in Marysville, Don's in San Francisco.
3: Don Harms is a violinist with the San Francisco Opera, having followed in her mother's footsteps. My parents' house was the central location for Christmas, Thanksgiving, birthdays. That's where we went. So we have to just rethink it. We had 56 years in that beautiful home, and that's how I think about it. And now it's a new chapter, and we just have to look on the bright side that they are still here with us. She's looking at Ellis and Arlene as she says this. They're all sitting in her brother's living room in Sacramento, a little disoriented, but alive and grateful. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro.
2: our show for today I'm Sasha Coca if you missed any part of today's show subscribe to our podcast the California Report magazine just look for the bear wearing earbuds we're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco our director is Susie Racho our technical producer is Seal Muller and we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon David Marks is our online producer and our intern is Marisol Medina-Cadena The California Report's editorial team includes Tyke Hendricks, Polly Stryker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Have a great weekend. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your
6: stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org.
2: Hi there. I'm Randa abdel from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today.
6: You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org/podcast. That's donate.kqed.org/podcast.